Seek your happiness, your own happy, your own happiness. You should be as happy as possible. I want you to just think about that for a second. Is, is that a uh, biblical statement? You should seek to be as happy as you possibly can be. Right? If you ask somebody or you, you bring that up, you, you make that statement and you say that to our culture today, people will say, absolutely, yes, that's, that's what it's all about. Do whatever makes you happy. Do whatever you want, and as long as you don't hurt anyone else, as long as you're not infringing on other people, do whatever makes you happy. Go for it. That's, that's pretty much uh, a pretty common theme in our culture today. Do whatever you want as long as uh, your feelings say so. Your feelings are the ultimate guide. I was, I was thinking about that idea this morning and, and this, this, throughout this week, and I came across some quotes that I had scribbled down just Oh, the past couple of years, and, and I came across this one by this man named Daniel Yankelovich. He wrote a book years ago, 25 years ago, but these quotes seem to be very relevant. And what he says is this. He says, today, oftentimes we operate on the premise that emotional cravings are sacred objects and that it is crime against nature to harbor any unfulfilled emotional need. And I thought about what he said. Okay, and then, and then the next quote, what he says a little later in the same book, he says, Ours is the first era where tens of millions of people offer as moral justification for their acts the idea that an inner and presumably more real self does not fit well with their assigned social roles. So in other words, your emotions and your feelings are king. They should be what guides you. That should be the thing that you look to. And if anybody tells you different, they're wrong. And they're trying to get at your real self. How dare you say that? And so I wanted to think about that this morning. And as I read those quotes, I thought, man, that really nails where our world is today in so many ways. And I kept thinking about that. But then as I thought about it, I was reading another book for our discipleship meeting tonight, our men's group. And as I was reading it, I came across a, a quote from Immanuel Kant. And if you know who Kant is, he's a German philosopher from the 1700s. And his big idea, his big thought is human enlightenment is the one who trusts his or her own power of thinking rather than an authority or tradition. Right. So he's basically was saying the same thing. The enlightened person is the person who trusts themselves, their own thinking and our own stuff. And so I started thinking about that. So it's certainly not a new idea to our culture because it was pretty prevalent in the 1700s. And so then started to think about that. And then really it's not anything really new to the 1700s. Because then I started to think about the book of Judges. A time of most uh, terrible moral decline and horrible things going on. And the summary statement in the book of Judges over and over is everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And I thought, well, so if we go back to even Judges. Or to my Surprises, I sat in Sunday school this morning and we talked about Proverbs and in the Proverbs that kept coming up about the fool is right in his own eyes. The same idea. We were, we were even that was coming out in Sunday school this morning as we talked about Proverbs. But it doesn't even begin there. It goes back even further all the way to the garden, to Adam and Eve, the original sin. God says, you trust me, trust me, not not your own stuff. You trust me and what I tell you. And the original sin is the serpent says to the woman, you surely won't die if you eat that. For God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Right. That's the original sin. Just just trust yourself. Trust what you think and what you feel. And that's 
that's the way to be guided. And so that picture of uh, is all throughout our culture. And so what our culture would say is you are the ultimate decider of happiness and you should seek your happiness. And that's the greatest thing. And the way that you figure that out is you look inward. You look to your emotions and your feelings and you follow after those things. So I want to go back to that question to seeking our happiness or we to be seeking our happiness. And I would say uh, not in the way our culture says it. But I do want to say biblically, we are seeking our happiness. And I want to talk about why and how that is, because that may sound counter, because often when we ask the question, we think of it the way our culture would say it. Look inwardly and what your feelings are and run after that. And that's how you get That's not what the Bible says, though. And so this morning, I want to think about that idea of this picture of do we seek our happiness? And if we do, what does that look like biblically? And so this morning, what we're doing is we're going back into our series, our overview series that we've been doing throughout the year. If you've been with us, you know, we've done this in different parts. We've actually done two 12 week sections where we've gone all the way from Genesis and we were up to the book of Nehemiah. So we did two 12 week sections and now we're starting on the last The last third of this series. So for the next 13 weeks, we're going to go from roughly actually Jeremiah today. We're we're backtracking a little this morning to the end to to Revelation. And so we got 13 weeks. Actually, 13 weeks will take us up to Thanksgiving. So if you didn't know that, you got 13 weeks till Thanksgiving. I was surprised when I looked at that on the calendar that it was that close. It didn't seem like it was that close. But and so that's what we're going to do. And so I'm not going to do the recap. Uh, we can't do the recap every week as we move through the whole Bible and we get further and further into it. And so I, I would point you to all those sermons we've done all year available on the website. And if you need specific ones and you would like them, we can get them to you on CD. And we even made some copies of the Sunday school from a few weeks back out here on the way to the fellowship hall. That's just an overview we did in Sunday school, 45 minutes of the big picture of the whole Bible. We did that in Sunday school between the first and second one. So I'd point you to that. Maybe if you're new to it and you want to try to catch up or see where we've been, that would be a good thing to go to. But so this morning, let's just real briefly get to where we were when we stopped a month ago to do our other little series in between. And we were up to the book of Nehemiah and the book of Nehemiah. What we saw is is that God had returned his people from exile. And as we've been following through the big story of Scripture, God calls the people out and the Israelites and they're his people and it's the way he's relating to the world and the way he's telling the world. And they get off track and they rebel and they do all these things. And God allows them to be taken into captivity by Babylon. And so for 70 years they're in captivity, but then God returns them. And what we saw in Nehemiah is they return and they return to God's word and they start to listen to it and they start to seek him. And so God starts to work. And that's kind of where we ended. And where we were is basically roughly around 450 B.C. If you're looking big picture timeline, 450 years before Christ would come. That's where we hit. Well, this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to backtrack just a little bit. We're going to go back to Jeremiah just for this week. And then next week, we're going to look at a different prophet. And the reason we're doing that is because in two weeks, we're going to hit the New Testament. And so what I want us to do is just backtrack a little and go back and look at some of these prophecies that point us clearly to what's coming in the New Testament, what's going to happen. So what we're doing is we're going from Nehemiah 450 B.C. to about 600 B.C. when Jeremiah is writing. And it's right before the exile, before those things happen. And Jeremiah has been telling them over and over, this is coming and this is what's going to happen. But God's still got a plan and he's going to restore you and he's going to do all these things. And so as we're in Jeremiah this morning, we're going to be looking at... A few verses in chapter 31 and a few verses in chapter 32, which if you want to follow along in the Bible that are in the pews, that's on page 428. And I want to make sure that I always point this out and tell you that uh, 
those Bibles are there. If you need a Bible, you don't have one or you just need another one or whatever, that's, they're there for you to take. So if you need one, please take it. We'd love for you to have one and to take one. And so what we're going to do in Jeremiah is when you read through the book of Jeremiah, since we're just stopping in one little spot, you read through the whole story, the whole big idea of Jeremiah. It's a tough book to get through. It's very hard. And it's a lot of God showing and telling his people how they've rebelled and what's going and what, what's coming, what's going to happen and all these things. But then there's this kind of glimmer of hope right in the middle of Jeremiah in chapters 30 to 34. And that's what we're looking at this morning, where God is faithful. And even though they've rebelled and even though it's in the midst of this darkness and all this terrible stuff, there's this wonderful promise right in the middle of Jeremiah. And so that's what we're going to look at today as we uh, spend our time together. So let's look at Jeremiah chapter 31. And we're going to read verses 31 to 34 and then 32. We're going to look at verses 36 to 41. So starting in Jeremiah 31 in verse 31, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And then moving to chapter 32, starting in verse 36, which if you're following along in the pew Bibles, it's just one page over. And it says this in verse 36. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the city of which you say it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety and they shall be my people and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing good to them and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. Let's pray and then we're going to look at those two passages together. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promises of it. We thank you for the continuity and the picture that paints the way it shows us how you're moving and the way that you're are working for our good and the way that you're doing that. And I pray this morning that you would just show us clearly how you're moving and how you're working. Uh, we just confess as we open your word that we need your spirit here to show us, to illuminate our hearts and our minds, because without that, we are hopelessly lost. We can't ever do this on our own. And so we just confess that we need you to be in this place and to move and to show us what you would have for us in this. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And so this morning, as we as we think about this, what we're really doing in a lot of ways is preparing for our time of moving to the New Testament in a couple of weeks. And so I just want us to see how important this is just in terms of big idea, big picture, because when we think of big picture and the way that God's promises are fulfilled and the way that he's faithful, it gives us a bigger view of who God is and how he's working, how large it is and how big 
the picture is. And so that is, is wonderful, even just for us practically in our lives today. The, the bigger we see God, the more in perspective it puts our problems and the things that we're dealing with. And uh, so with that in mind, let's look at this. And what we're going to be talking about this morning is this new promise or what we call the new covenant. The new promise, covenant, promise, same word, basically. And so as we look at this, what Jeremiah is promising this to come, what the new promise is, we're going to ask this. First of all, what is it? What happens to us? And then lastly, what's the outcome? So what is it? What happens to us? And then what's the outcome? So first, what is it? What is coming? And so I want us to think about this as we've been moving through just real big idea, big pictures. We move throughout scripture. We see promise after promise after promise as God keeps. We see right in the beginning in Genesis three, God makes a promise that I'm going to send a savior to fix this sin problem, to fix this alienation that we have with God because of the way that we have ignored him. And then we see it picked up in Genesis 12. He says it's going to come through Abraham's seed. And then we see it later on with David. It's going to come through your seed and all the way through it's It's repeated over and over down through the years. And they keep saying God's doing this. And God keeps saying I'm working and I'm going to do this. and I'm going to bring this to fulfillment. And then we get to this time with Jeremiah and this time in the prophets. And what we end up seeing is God saying it's coming and it's, it's going to be a new covenant. And it's going to be a little different than like the, the old covenant. Some of these older ones. And he even says that right here. If you look in verses 31 to 32 of chapter 31 with me, he says, behold, the days are coming when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And he says it will be not like that that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. And so what God's reminding and he's talking about is the, the Ten Commandments and the covenant that God makes with Moses and his people as he brought them out of the land of Egypt. And if you'll remember when we covered that way back months and months ago, we, we hit on that and we talked about how the Ten Commandments and the law and the things that God gives are not the way that we earn favor with God. But we, we need to remember the order in which that happened. Remember, God goes down and he takes them out of Egypt and he graciously rescues them and he starts to bring them and set them up and to make them a people. And then he gives them his law and his commandments. And so what he was doing is he was saying, here, I am your God and I love you and I'm taking care of you. Now you do these things out of faith. You follow me out of faith by, by holding to my word and what I've told you. But what we know and what God even tells us through Jeremiah right here in, in verse 32 is that they didn't keep the covenant. They didn't keep this promise with God that the people broke it and they didn't uphold their side of the bargain. They didn't follow God and what he says. And you see that right there in verse 32 and and what we know throughout scripture and even through Jeremiah's book and what he tells us in here is that the reason we don't is we, we have a sick heart. Right. He says our heart is desperately wicked. That it's, it's sick, that we're infected with sin, that it's our heart is deceitful above all things, is the way Jeremiah says it, that we have a heart that rebels against God. And so when the first part of the covenant came, God gave these laws and these things. And he says, this is how you trust me and this is how you follow me. And this is what it looks like that because of a deceitful, sinful, broken heart, they rebelled. And even though they saw these things that God was telling them and all that he had done and all that he had showed them, bringing them out of Egypt and miraculous signs and wonders, they rebelled. And it's because of a deceitful heart. And you think about just even the Ten Commandments, that sin gets so in us and through us. God gives them the Ten Commandments and he says things like that uh, you, you shouldn't lie. Don't bear false witness. And right, and a deceitful heart says, well, you can't tell the truth all the time. 
There's times when maybe it would be better to to bend the truth a little bit. And then there's God's word standing over and above that saying, no, tell the truth. Or or maybe a deceitful heart says, ah, this monogamy thing, one man, one woman, I don't really get that. And then there's God's word standing over and above it that you shouldn't commit adultery, that this is the way I've designed this to happen and relationships to go. Or maybe we say things like a deceitful heart springs up and says, my parents are so out of touch, they don't understand me. They don't know what it's like to be raised in this world, and it's so different from the world they lived in, and I don't really need to listen to them. And then there's God's word saying, honor your father and mother. And so what we have in the old covenant is is these laws and these things that God graciously gives us to help us see him and see how things go together, that how the creator of the world made the things to go together and fit together, but yet our deceitful heart rebels. And so under the old covenant, there were these external things that God put in place to help us and to guide us and to be gracious and loving to us, and we rebel. And you see that all throughout the Old Testament. That's what it is, just cycles over and over and over. That's how they end up in captivity, right? Because they're rebelling against God, and you see it over and over. And so in the midst of that, that's what Jeremiah is writing about in two. That's the context he's writing. Right in the midst of that, God says, yes, you've rebelled and you've done all these things, but I'm going to give you a new promise, a new covenant, a new thing. And so we start to see what's different and what the new one is. And if you look at verses 33 and 34, he says, for this covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. They know they no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And so the new covenant and the new promise that's coming in the New Testament that Jeremiah is talking about, he says, God's given you these laws and he's been gracious and he's told you how to follow him. And you're just rebelling and rebelling because you have a sinful, deceitful Wicked heart. And so God says, okay, I'm going to give you a new promise now. And it's going to be, I'm going to remake your heart. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to go in and fix the very thing that's the problem. I'm going to fix your deceitful heart. In in Ezekiel chapter 36, God would say it this way. Similar promise, the same promise pointing to the new covenant. In Ezekiel 36, he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Or in other words, I'm going to give you a new heart altogether. I'm going to do this work in you, this miraculous work, and I'm going to take your broken, sinful, stone heart that's, that's rejecting God and what he says and deceives you and does all these things, and I'm going to give you a new heart. And so God says, I'm going to come and do this work in you. Regeneration. Be born again, as we say in the church. Maybe you've grown up in the church and you have That's what we're talking about. God says, I'm going to make you new. You're going to be born new. You're going to get a new heart instead of this deceitful, sinful heart. And so this is at the very heart of what we believe as Christians, as followers of Jesus. This is what Jesus talked about and what he taught and what he was calling us to and pointing us to. Because, and it's so important that we see this, because if we see it just as the old covenant of it's things that are out here that I need to do. And by the way, that's a mistaken view of the old covenant because the old covenant you weren't saved by works you were still saved by faith you trusted god and what he had done for you You put your faith in him he saves you and then you seek to follow his laws because of what he's done for you but we twist it 
And we make it, well, there's these rules and there's these things and the church tells us and the Bible tells us. And so what we need to do is we follow those rules so that God will accept me. And if we miss the very heart of this, that God is saying, I come down and I give you a new heart and I do this work in you. We make it into uh, legalism and we make it into self-righteous earning. I do these things so that God will bless me. I do these things. And so we, we switch it. And so it's so important that we see this very heart of what's happening in the new covenant that God comes and does what we can't do for us. And so he gives us a new heart. And he gives us a new heart and then something happens to us. And that's our second part. Well, what happens to us? The new covenant is a promise of a new heart, a new thing that's going to happen. God's going to come in. But what happens to us as a result? Look at chapter 32, starting in verse 38, at what God says happens to us in this new covenant. In verse 38, he says, I shall uh, they shall be my people and I will be their God and I will give them one heart in one way that they may fear me forever. For their own good and the good of their children, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing good to them and I will plant them in the land, this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. And so God says, I'm going to come and I'm going to do this work. And this new promise is I'm going to give you a new heart and there's going to be a change, a changed heart. And then in verse 40 or verse 39, he says, I'm going to do this. They're going to have one heart in one way, and then I will make them to fear me forever. He says the same thing in verse 40. I will put the fear in their hearts that they may not turn from me. And so when we talk about what happens to us, we get this picture of we, we get the fear of God, the fear of the Lord. And, and I know when I say that, when we talk about that and, and that comes up, you might go, oh, that doesn't really sound like that great of a promise. Right? The new heart and the new thing and what's going to come from that is you're going to fear God forever. That's what he says. I'm going to put my fear in you and that will be in there forever. And see, here's the problem, though, when we say that, because I've heard lots of people say that to me. Fear God. I don't want a God that I'm afraid of. Who wants that? I want a God of love and I want a God of, of mercy and those things. I don't want a God that I fear. And people reject that a lot of times out of hand without understanding what the Bible's talking about. See, we take our view of what we mean by fear and we think, oh, that means cowering in the corner, afraid of God. But that's not what the Bible talks about when it talks about fear. And so if we're going we're gonna to read this of the fear of God, we need to think about what that means biblically. That's why we read Psalm 128 this morning. Right? Our first reading was from Psalm 128 and it says, blessed is the man who fears the Lord. He's blessed. It's a good thing. And so oftentimes we think fear of God and we think of it as a bad thing. And who would want that and who would want a God like that? But just let me real briefly, this is not exhaustive, but just what the Bible says comes from the fear of the Lord. Just just listen for just a second of what happens when we fear God. It says when we fear the Lord, we have an awe of God. We see, we're in awe of who he is, which leads us to trusting him. It leads to steadfast love. It leads to walking in his ways leads to a hatred of evil. It leads to a strong confidence and a wisdom. Those are all wonderful, great things that come when we start to fear God, to fear the fear of the Lord in us. And so really biblically, what the fear of God means is we see him for who he is. We actually see who God is and we start to have a reverential awe for who God is. 
The God that has made all things and sustains all things and holds them together by the power of his word. And we are in awe of him. We are so taken with who he is and what he's done. And so we start to see that. And so when God says, I'm going to put the fear of of me in you, you're going to see me for who I am. And you're going to be overtaken with the beauty and the wonder of who God is. And it's going to lead you to have this awe of him. But not only that, you then begin to love the things he loves. And you hate evil. You hate the things that God hates. And you start to see things the way he sees it. And he begins to make you new. And so when we think about what it means, what happens to us, is he gives us a new heart that begins to align with who he is. And we see things the way he sees them. Which is the best possible way to see them because God is perfect. And we see it, we begin to see it in that way and we become new. And so instead of having something out here that's pressing in on us, hey, you have to do this. And we go, okay, I guess I have. No, he says, I'm going to come in and I'm going to make you new and you're going to want to do these things. I was thinking of it like this. This is probably a poor example, but it's like when you maybe you go out to eat or you're you're deciding what to have for dinner or whatever it is. uh, If you go out to eat a lot of times today, they'll say, "Uh, would you like the French fries with that or would you like the broccoli? And you go. Uh, I want the french fries, but I guess I'll have the broccoli. Or sometimes you just eat the french fries, whatever it may be. But you go, oh, my doctor says I should have the broccoli, so I'll eat the broccoli. And so we do that, and then we kind of drudge through it, and we go, oh, you know. The whole time you're thinking, I really wish I would have got the french fries. These, so broccoli's terrible, or, or whatever. But, or maybe you eat it, and then you feel really good that you ate it, and you go, oh, it wasn't that great, but it got me through. And, and so, but, but when I think of the new covenant and what happens and what God's promising is, He's coming in and he's giving us a new heart, which means new affections and a new way to see things. And so what really is happening is he's he's making us want the broccoli to a degree. But not only that, as we begin to eat the broccoli and we begin to see it and we want that, it's the best tasting thing we've ever had. It's not just we're eating it because, oh, I got to eat it now. God gives you a new affections and new taste buds and new things. And so it's the same thing when we talk about reading God's word. Or spending time in prayers. He comes in and gives you a new heart. I want to spend time with him. I want to seek his face. So I want to open his word. It's not, oh, I've got to do that because now I'm a Christian. And so that means read the Bible. And I've got to pray. And I've got... No, He starts to make you new. And he, he draws you to his presence. And you begin to see who he is and what's happening. And I want to do these things now. And so that's what we're talking about when we talk about the new covenant. A new heart. And I'm going to put the fear of me in you and you're going to see it and you're going to want to know me and you're going to seek me. Oh, what a beautiful picture of what the new covenant is and the new promise. And so I want us to think just for a second. Well, how does that happen? How is that possible? God's saying, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this thing. And the time is coming when this is what it's going to be like and you're going to come to me. And so when we think about how it happens and what happens, you go to Hebrews 9 and it tells us how it happens and what happens hebrews 9 says but when christ appeared as the high priest of good things that have come that's in hebrews 9 11 and then verse 15 it says therefore he being jesus is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant And so what Hebrews is telling us is that Jesus is going to come, or in in the case of Hebrews, he's already come. In the case of Jeremiah, they're looking ahead. They don't know that yet. They don't know exactly how it's going to work. But the picture is Jesus is going to come and he's going to redeem us. And see, the problem is from the old covenant is we have this awful, deceitful, sinful heart. 
And so Jesus says, I'm going to come and I'm going to take your sin. You're going to give it to me. I'm going to take it. All you have to do is put your faith in me and trust in me and I will take it and I will remove it. And your deceitful, sinful heart will be replaced with a new heart that does not, that no longer has an inward selfish, it's all about me and my feelings and what I want and what I think. It's now going to have an outward focus towards God. I'm going to do this work in you and I'm going to do this thing for you. That's why each week when we celebrate the Lord's Supper and we talk about Jesus saying, he takes the cup and says, this is the new covenant in my blood given for you. The new covenant is purchased by what Christ has done for us. Right? Jesus comes and dies and he takes our sin and he makes payment for us. And then he gives us the, the benefits of that. The, the new heart and a new way of seeing him. You see that uh, right in chapter 31 at the end of verse 34. Because God's saying this new covenant that's coming and it's going to come and I'm going to do these things. And you're going to know me and you're going to know me intimately. And then I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. God's saying, I'm going to do this. Right? The new promise is, I'm going to come and do these things for you, and then I'm going to forgive you, and I'm going to give you a new heart, and I'm going to do all of it, and I'm going to do it through Christ. Right? So when we talk about the new covenant and the new promise, that's what we're pointing to, that Jesus is going to come into the story, and he's going to live the perfect life, and he's going to take our sin, and he's going to remake us. Right? Sin, we've been saying all throughout the series over and over, sin is ignoring God and the world that he created. That's our problem. Looking inwardly. I don't need God. I'll do this myself. Right? I'll figure this out. I know what I like. This is what my feelings are telling me. All those kinds of things. And God says, you come to me through Christ and I will remake that. I will turn you inside out. Instead of being all about me, you'll now be about who God is and you'll start to see him fully. And I will begin to put the fear of God in you. This wonderful thing where we actually see God as he is and we make <clears throat> we come together in this wonderful relationship with him. And so that's what happens to us, and that's how it happens. We become new, and we have new affections and new things, and it only happens through what Christ does for us and nothing else. And so what's the outcome of that? And that's where we're going to end this morning, just thinking about what happens. Well, what happens is we have this new affections, but what's the outcome for us? We get these new affections and these new things. We trust Christ, and we get a new heart, and we have new desires, and a new orientation, and then we enter into this relationship with God that you were made for. And what happens is joy. Happiness beyond anything you can ever imagine or you can ever seek in anything else. And so when we start to see the way God has ordained it and the way he says it, that's why Jesus says in John 15, I've spoken these things to you that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. I've come to show you that this is everything you've ever wanted. All the things that you've sought after and all the things you try to fill your life up with and all the times that you rely on your emotions and your feelings and you look inward, those will all come up short, but only through me will you ever have the fullness of joy. And so biblically, when we see that, God wants you to seek your happiness because your happiness comes from Him. It comes from glorifying Him and seeing Him and savoring Him and loving Him above all else. So He does want your happiness. He does want you to seek your happiness because when you seek Him, that's when your joy is full. 
It's not the way the world says it. But God does want your happiness. He even says it right here. Look at what he says at the end of chapter 32 and verse 40 and 41. I will give them one heart in one way that they may fear me forever. And then he says for their own good and the good of their children. And then verse uh, 41, he says, uh, I will rejoice. God talking, I will rejoice in doing good to them with all my heart and all my soul. And so when you come into the new covenant and you put your faith in Christ and he gives you a new heart and you see him and then God's rejoicing over doing good to you. I'm going to give you everything. I'm going to pour into you. Now, we'll twist that and say, oh, he's going to give us everything. So that means riches and cars and money and all. No, no, no. You're going to have the joy of the relationship with God. And so what's going on outside of us can't take that away. It's so much greater than getting joy out of temporal things because the temporal things don't matter. You can still have happiness and you can still have joy despite external circumstances. And so when we talk about the promise that's given in Jeremiah, 600 years before Jesus comes, God's saying, I'm going to do a work that you can't believe. I'm going to make you new. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to restore you to the thing that you were made for. And I'm going to fill you up and you're going to, I'm going to rejoice in doing good to you and pouring out for you and giving to you. And so when we look at that picture what a beautiful, so I say the greatest promise, right? That's why this sermon today, the greatest promise that Jeremiah is pointing to is, is he's going to restore us to the thing that we were made for. He's going to answer our deepest needs and our deep response and fill us up with his joy that can only come through Christ and nothing else. And so as we get ready to move towards the New Testament, I just wanted us to stop and think about all the promises and all the things that point for so many years to Jesus and it's all coming together in him. And so just dwell on that beautiful picture of what God's done for us. Let's, let's close in, in prayer and just thank him. Dear Lord, we thank you for the promise of the new covenant. We thank you for the fulfillment of the new covenant that only comes through Christ. And as he's, he's, you've now come and you've purchased and finished that work. And you give us a new heart and new affections for you. And, and we thank you for that. We pray that you would ever be... Uh, stirring up those affections that you'd be taking hold of our life and showing us more and more clearly your beauty and your majesty. We pray this morning for those that, that, that may sit here and say, I don't have a clue what he's talking about. I don't, I don't understand that. And I pray that your, your spirit would move and that you would open eyes and hearts to see you, that you would put the fear of God in us, that you would give us your joy and the fullness of your beauty in your mercy. And so we just pray that you would do that in this place, that we confess that it's only through you and only through what Christ has done for us. And so we just ask that. We thank you for what you've done for us. And we pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.